It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Hey, everybody. Every uh, time I do a podcast, I say I'm excited. But for some reason, I'm extra excited, double extra excited. This guy is, I would call him like a mad genius composer. Uh, I came upon him maybe 15 years ago. I uh, picked up a compilation by a guy named Errol Alkin. It was called Bugged, the Bugged In Selections. I think that's what it was called. There was Bugged Out, Bugged In. And buried in one of these was a song called Overnight, which was this solo piano piece. And it was like I never listened to piano, and I never was that much into instrumentals, but it knocked me out. So I went and I, I, I searched for the uh, this album, this solo piano album, and and it was done by a guy named Chili Gonzalez, who's a Grammy-winning Canadian musician. Um, he was in a band called Sun, and then he, he has he, – I can't explain his career because it's – so unusual, and right now he's got a his first book out, which is on Enya, a treatise on unguilty pleasures, and he's got a Christmas album coming out, a very chilly Christmas. Um, chilly, how are you? I'm fantastic. You can call me Gonzo. I'll call you Gonzo. Okay, so Gonzo, Gonzo isn't your real name. Neither is Chili. You're Canadian. No. So no, uh, you I, I'm a Canadian with with a very boring name, Jason Beck. <laughs> but I always thought of me as music and being on stage as a chance to reinvent oneself. You know, that's sort of what I learned from my favorite rappers, my mm-hmm. favorite entertainers. Yeah. And so uh, I wasn't going to go by that name. Well, you know, um, you do so many things, and you've. Your your career isn't a linear career. It's I thought I had a weird career. I mean, I was a fitness editor in the '90s, so this so I understand changes. What? How would you describe your career? Well, it's just that you know I came from a certain um, you know, Canadian indie rock scene mm-hmm. in the late '90s. This is you know pre-internet, yeah, pre-YouTube, pre-social media, and so back then it was a very sort of limited range of what you could sort of expect to do as far as originality and i just back then i was a little bit weak and i i wasn't able to just own who i was Mm -hmm. so i was sort of trying to fit into other boxes for quite a while and then i kind of had a a moment where i just decided to leave north america i moved to berlin in the year uh, 1999 and i just decided that i was gonna finally be myself and that meant using my sense of humor, using my actual musical background, which is a sort of combination of very strict classical virtuosity combined with, you know, punk rock and most of all having fun. Mm-hmm. I would say that's the absolute most important thing in what I do. And uh, and very slowly, I kind of got to a place where I could find that balance between my seriousness as a musical student, because I do take the craft of music exceptionally seriously. Mm-hmm up to and including today. Uh, (laughs) At the same time, I can't stand pretension in music. Mm -hmm. I can't stand sort of what I would call musical correctness, a kind of musical version of political correctness of how artists are supposed to act, be humble, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to start provoking and sort of pushing back against that at the same time, trying not to sacrifice the, the music itself to make sure that the, the, the persona hijinks never overshadowed. 
Certainly, sometimes I got the balance wrong on either side. <laughs> there were moments where I might have been a bit boring, mm -hmm. and there were maybe moments where I was just screaming too loud for anyone to actually notice the music. But I'd say that, if anything, the reason it doesn't look linear to you is that it just took me a while to get the balance. And when right. I got it, probably around 10 years ago, I've been sticking with it. And, yeah. and my career has been pretty linear over the last 10 years or so. Well, okay, so I'm listening to you, and there's so much – uh, that you've said that I find parallel in my life, and I'm not saying I'm anywhere near as talented as you are. I'm looking in the world of media and the boxes that I put myself in when I in the '90s. You know, as a a person that had I I was I was a weirdo, and I forced myself to be a fitness editor at Prevention Magazine, and then I became the editor of Men's Health. This is not who I am. It's part of me, but I had to actually kind of like completely change and decide not change but decide to be who I am and pursue that and such a large part of it was humor and having fun and taking risks and I feel like when I listen to your music and I see what you do I feel like that's such an amazing model for people uh to do what you do I love your master classes on YouTube I the way you um describe music uh so that people can understand it uh and uh for example I, I urge my, I urge the listeners to go to YouTube and just type in Chili Gonzalez and Craftwork uh, because I found that that two and a half minute segment so I, I learned so much. What was that instrument you were playing? That four hundred year old instrument? Oh, that that's a little crappy used harpsichord that I bought, and uh, it's it, it was just to make a point uh, that so often we think of music. Uh, or a musical style as linked to the technology mm -hmm. that was sort of carrying it. So we think electronic music and, you know, people can be forgiven for thinking it has to be an, on an electronic instrument. But in fact, I like to sort of go deeper in and see what are some of the sort of philosophical approaches or, or even tactile approaches to making that music. In other words, I try to create using just a piano or in this case, a harpsichord, the idea of electronic music or the idea of rap music. How do you sit down with the piano and sort of try to play piano as if you were playing an MPC sampler like a rap producer would? Right. And that's very interesting to me, to not have to resort to having an electronic instrument or a sampler, but it's, people can still feel the presence of electronic music influence or rap music influence in what I do. It's kind of a translatability of musical styles that interests me. Mm -hmm. And to a certain extent, also looking at just how common the basic concepts of music are, no matter what the style is, uh, certainly in Western music, the concept of tension and release, mm -hmm. the idea that something is sort of building up, building up, building up, and then gets resolved. I mean, you hear that in like the drop in electronic music, right. but you also hear that in the entirety of classical music. You hear that in jazz solos where they go out to come back in, all those kinds of concepts. And it interests me to say, yeah, we have all these styles, we have all these in a way, even social identities wrapped up in these musical styles, different kind of teams, if you will. Uh, but in the end, the concepts are relatively similar. And what actually makes them different is not what we think. Mm -hmm. It's certainly not just the fact that you bought uh, a synthesizer that means that all of a sudden you're an electronic musician. It has to go deeper than that. Right. You know, it's funny because like when you talked about uh, using the piano, uh, when you uh, when you did Brian Adams' Uh, summer of 69, 
a, a song that I really didn't care for, but I, I have a theory on why I don't like certain songs, and then I end up liking them. And I listen to your your version of it on the piano, and it's such a it's such a great song. And, and I realized that, and I don't know, because this will lead into talking about Enya. There's something about lyrics as I got older that I've I've started to move away from, and it's I, I like I appreciate Summer '69 without the lyrics and just hearing the melody. And I'm wondering if if lyrics can often interfere with your enjoyment of something. Well, it's a little bit like what I was saying. The voice and the the, the cheesiness that we associate with Brian Adams' voice yeah. and his image gets in the way of us judging whether that's a good piece of music or not. So the piano has this amazing quality that reduces all music to a kind of version that you would find in the platonic world of forms. Mm -hmm. In other words, you remove all of the sort of earthly details of it. And on the piano, you get very close to this atomic version. It's just the melody on the right hand, some chords on the left hand. And that's a sort of test. You know, it's a sort of test. Does this song actually stand up? And very often, if you take uh, some certain failing pieces of music, Mm -hmm. uh, the reason that they fail is because they aren't translatable. In mm. fact, they depend on that one siren sound. They depend on that one guitar with reverb. They depend on just the attitude of the singer. But once you get over to a piano, you realize this doesn't cut it at all. Wow. I will also just add, there's a lyric. There is a lyric in Summer of 69 where he says, ain't no use in complaining when you've got a job to do. Mm. And I consider that like, you know, up there with a the Ten Commandments person. <laughs> it, that is a great lyric. That is, that is. You know, you. I'm going to ask you a really stupid question, but why not? Uh, you talked about Western styles of music. And this is something that is going it, to, it's a really dumb question, but I'm going to ask it. Why does music from different lands or different cultures sound different. As a kid, I would go to like a Japanese tea garden in San Francisco and I would hear the music there. And that would be the first time I heard Japanese music. So when I hear the sound of Japanese music, I just assume that it sounds Japanese. And it's the same thing if you go to an Indian restaurant or you go to Russia and you hear Russian music or Spanish music. And I'm and I've always wondered what comes first. Is that even possible to discuss? And can you experience music? As, say, Japanese, if you didn't first experience it in that environment, like how would you respond to it? It's it's a stupid – I think it's a dumb question because I think it's just an environmental thing, but I don't know. Well, it's it's either the dumbest question or the smartest question because it it comes back to that same thing. How much of music is associated with – the cultural details around it, you know? Mm -hmm. And in the book that I wrote about Enya, which is not a biography or journalistic book about her, but I just use Enya as a way of talking about musical taste Mm -hmm. and, and what is our physical sort of innocent taste before we even know what taste is when we're kids and we get goosebumps just because something sort of touches us. Then you could hear something Japanese without knowing it's Japanese and you would have your physical reaction or not. And it should be as simple as that. It's sort of like, do you like bananas? Mm -hmm. No, I don't like bananas or I do like bananas. In a way, music could and in a way should be as simple as that. Mm -hmm. But in reality, as soon as we sort of become aware maybe in our teens or so, music music, and all other kinds of things that we express our taste through become like a battleground. And it's like, I define myself as this, you know, or I define myself against this. Oh, my older brother likes this, so I'm going to like this. Mm-hmm. And there you suddenly can't separate it anymore. Just like now, 
when you hear the cliche of a koto and a little stringed instrument playing some sort of pentatonic Japanese stuff, mm -hmm. right away you're like, oh, Japanese. You right. sort of have this intellectual, cultural signifier, and you're not even listening to it objectively anymore because it's just Japanese music. Uh, and, um, and I think in the Enya book, I try to get to what is the tragic gap between that innate taste where you just react yeah. know, in a very intrinsic way versus the sort of cultivated taste of adulthood. And that, that gap in between, uh, people will often call a guilty pleasure. It just means that they're having the physical reaction like I do to Enya. Mm -hmm. But then some voice in my head might say, oh, but you shouldn't like this because it's considered cheesy or it's considered music for milfs or mm -hmm. whatever right and you think oh that's not for me and so you have this conflict and you resolve that conflict by saying it's a guilty pleasure i happen to think guilty pleasures shouldn't exist we should be able to own our taste it should be as simple as i don't like bananas and i like anya yeah it's like uh, when you say guilty pleasure you're saying it to protect yourself from criticism for liking something whether it's a soap opera or a boy band or corn dogs you just say oh it's a, it's my guilty pleasure and it's actually a criticism it's a criticism of the object itself and and I don't know much about Enya I always assumed that she was a new a new age style uh artist and but what's weird for me now is that I find that a lot of the ambient or drone electronica is new age, but they don't call it that. But am I am I off base with her? Um, no, that, that that that's a good description of of her in a sort of that's that's what most people would categorize her as. Mm -hmm. The music industry probably had a lot to do with making that a thing. Yeah, the fact of new age and 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 why not? I mean, uh, I, I I do believe things have to be labeled, but. Not only is the guilty pleasure syndrome sort of coming from a place of criticism, in the end, it's a position of weakness mm -hmm. because it's saying, I, I don't have the strength to stand up for my own opinions and my own tastes. Mm -hmm. That's what's tragic about it to me. Not only that, Enya is like a badass in her career. She's got giant balls. She doesn't <laughs> tour. She doesn't do any promotion. Most of her records, half the songs she doesn't even sing. I mean, she is the <laughs> record company executive douchebag's nightmare. <laughs> and yet she has this reputation of being sort of this warm bath of music. And I just find that very interesting that people won't give her that credit for being a badass. Again, because the cultural signifiers of her music mean that she should be taken a little bit less seriously. But hopefully my book can change a little bit of that. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to read it, and I'm not – I didn't get it yet. So I'll, I'm like one of the few podcasters that will admit I didn't read the book yet, but I was too busy doing deep dive research on everything you've done, which could take months. But I'm, I, I, I wanted to ask you about – more about the nature of lyrics and, and how – like do you – I always felt like how many people have done terrible things based on sad songs? Like do you like when you when you're a teenager and you're so deeply affected by uh, music? I mean, I I think Morrissey. I, Morrissey. Morrissey. I was going to say how soon is now? <laughs> I was going to how soon is now is probably my favorite song of all time. And I'm and but every like everything Morrissey did, and I wasn't even a teenager, but I was in a bad relationship. So that all of his all the Smiths were just amazing. Do you? Do you think that it sounds very old fogey and very uh, old right wing like or Tipper Gore that lyrics, whether it's hip hop 
or industrial nihilistic metal or the romantic sad songs have a negative effect on people's minds? Well, Morrissey's sad songs, if I can just defend yeah. Morrissey. Because I love Morrissey. As, as, as a great living genius, mm-hmm. uh, he it's very funny. Mm-hmm. It's not just sad. The, the problem when lyrics don't work is because they're one-dimensional. People mm-hmm. aren't one-dimensional. You can't have uh, – uh, some people say, I like the minor chords. It's like, well, you can't make a whole song of minor chords. <laughs> it loses its power if it's one minor chord after another. It has to be telling a story. There's either tension and release. There's, there's dashed hopes. Whatever, however, whatever complex emotional story you want to tell to have a successful song, it's going to cycle through many different emotions and hopefully so many that you can't really put words to it anyway. It's sort of this weird story that involves these complex set of emotional circumstances. So lyrics are the same. They really, they have to be sad and funny at the same time for them to work. If they're only funny, of course, you're just a novelty act. If they're only sad, then yeah, it's going to be like what you're talking about. It's this nihilistic, it's the wallowing, Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not fun. Yeah, It's just not fun. And one of the reasons that I happen to love rap lyrics uh, is that, you know, rap lyrics kind of broke broke through something that had been sort of, uh, I think, uh, a reigning philosophy of music, that lyrics should be what you can't say. It's your innermost feelings that are forbidden. Mm -hmm. And the song is what allows you to finally sort of say, but this is how I really feel. This is how it was in, in opera. You know, opera, the aria comes at a moment or in musical theater, the song comes at a moment, usually, where somebody has to sort of open up. Uh, but then there's this whole other tradition called recitative, and that's where they're basically talking to each other in between the areas in an opera. Now, a lot of it's musically seemingly unlistenable to our ears because there's no real catchy hooks, there's a lot of repetition, but it did capture something about this sort of dichotomy between how you talk when you talk to other people, which involves bullshit, mm-hmm. pretense, positioning, strategy, mm-hmm. hearing yourself say things you want to hear yourself say, all that kind of tragic human stuff that happens when we talk to each other versus the innermost feelings. And I got very attracted to rap because finally rap took that mantle of recitative and said, we are going to represent how we talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And when people criticize rap for being superficial or full of too much braggadocio, bravado, showing off. I say, listen closer. There's a lot of self-loathing in there. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot in there. The good rap has a lot. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the, the, the superficial side that many people seem to see. I'm constantly defending rap lyrics to people who only hear, only hear that. I say, well, have you heard how people talk to each other? Rap <laughs> yes. captures that. It rap does. captures that. It does. It's I. You just. I don't know why you made me think of this, but I. I just went back. I was like going through my my catalog of rap music and how I started listening to it in. Uh, I guess it was like the mid '80s with Grandmaster Flash, um, and uh, what's the dude's name? The these all oh, the breaks. What's his name? I can't think of his name. Curtis Blow. Curtis Blow. Yeah. So and then uh, um, and then I was. It made me think of the first Beastie Boys album that everybody had to disown, even though in my view it was amazing. And I, I'm going back to so the lyrics of the Beastie Boys were absurd, cartoonish. But they even had to say like that up from the second album on, they had to like disown that album because it was quote it was misogynistic. But it really was kind of fulfilling everything that you were talking about. It's the way these well, guys it's, it's talk. It's juvenile. Yes. It's juvenile and exuberant. I mean, 
I, I love License to Ill. Yeah. And I listen to the podcast Come Town for the same reason. It's <laughs> juvenile and exuberant. Yeah. You know, you know that podcast? No, I've heard of it. I've heard of it, okay. but I have no idea what it's about. Is it a Well, it, it's it's juvenile and exuberant and yeah. and in a way it's an anti podcast. There's no topics. You don't know who the hosts are. It's pure bullshit and it's so much fun. And the license to ill. Look look what happened to the Beastie Boys. Just a couple of albums later, they start to play their own instruments, mm-hmm. circa check your head. Yeah. And to me, watching that evolution, already being 14 years old and loving License to Ill, then suddenly seeing, oh, my God, they're, they're so much more like me than I thought. Mm-hmm. They play instruments. And they were able to also find that balance between the sort of being permanent, you know, uh, being being permanent musical students, yeah. very serious about their craft, while at the same time making sure that they were always having fun. In other words... Their craft of music, which you sort of prepare what you do, is always done in a state of diligence and in a state of basically being a goody two-shoes. You know, when I practice the piano, I'm there's no rebellious spirit. I'm I'm only preparing. I'm I'm preparing in seriousness, but always executing in fun. Yeah. And speaking of fun, I didn't realize that and we have to talk about Andrew WK, who was a regular on uh, on Red Eye back in the almost like fifteen, well, not that, ten years ago, well, twelve years ago. You know Andrew, and you've uh, explained how you you actually had a piano off with him. Well, NHWK is also someone with with a very sort of serious uh, musical soul mm-hmm. at the same time, really playful with his persona. Uh, his, his persona is basically based on partying. Yeah. And for him, partying is like a mantra. For him, being a partier is a little bit like me being an entertainer. For me, the idea of entertainment and saying I'm an entertainer, is, it's very important that I use that word because mm-hmm. it means that I'm not an artist. And it's a way of provoking all of the other self-serious, pretentious artists. Right. Just as partying, which you would just think of as, you know, drinking some beer. But it goes beyond that for him. Partying is a philosophy as entertainment is for me. And so I saw a kindred spirit and I challenged him to a piano battle at Joe's Pub back in 2009. (laughs) And we went back and forth, back and forth. We had a format. Uh, We could answer each other. We could play a little bit together. And uh, I beat him brutally. Uh, he was he he was not the same afterwards. And uh, we have a sort of ongoing wish to have a rematch. You know, the ten year anniversary passed and we missed it. And uh, but we we definitely like to do it again. I'd love to give him a chance to try to do better next he, time. He put out a. Uh, I saw him live performing. I think it was an album of piano compositions, right? He oh, put, he's a, he's a wonderful pianist. Yeah. He's a fantastic musician. He just couldn't beat me, but yeah. he's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> he is. He is actually, and also to your point about his ma- mantra and everything, probably the most uh, positive person, or or, or or at least he puts out such a positive vibe, and it's so important uh, for him to do that. And I, he, he's just a wonderful person. I've always, uh, I haven't talked to him though in like five years. Now, now I feel guilty. Thanks for that. <laughs> Yeah, but anyway. Let's both write him an email, okay? Let's, <laughs> when we hang up, it's like, yeah. hey, Andrew, what's up? All right, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. So here's another question, and this is probably an easy biological one. I don't know, but you hear – so let's say you're 15 and you hear a song at the beginning of summer. Let's say it's Bohemian Rhapsody, and you're crying, and every, and, you, and you, have, you buy the album, and you keep putting the needle back over, 
over and over and over again where you can listen to this song 30 times, 40 times. Then over a period of, of weeks or months, you stop doing it. And this, and no matter how great the song is and the song remains entirely the same, it's not the same in your head, which means there's some kind of chemical, a permanent, a permanent chemical change in your brain that is connected to that song. Like it can't, you can't ever hear that song again the same way. And I guess it's just, I guess you just go back to dopamine or something like that. But it, it, I find it sad, I guess. I don't know. Well, it's probably to do with the fact that music has to always be very careful how it doses surprise and satisfaction. Yeah. And what's amazing is that when you first hear a piece of music, you sort of, you're taken with its surprises Mm -hmm. and you start to sort of anticipate them while they're still fresh. Right. There is a point where that starts to pay diminishing returns. The same happens in relationships. When Mm -hmm. you start off with someone, it's just pure passion, pure fantasy, Sex is off the charts. Mm-hmm. There's just a moment where those surprises start paying diminishing returns, and it is indeed a tragic moment. Right it, it is. It is, and it's true with everything. It's the not. It's the biology of novelty. Uh, no matter what you do, and it, except, I always find that I can still enjoy a steak every single day, which is uh, a, another problem. I, I, how long isn't it weird when you don't like a song? And then you like a song. It's like, so let's say you buy an album and it's that, I'll use the whatever, Bohemian Rhapsody immediately is your favorite song. But then you find out it's like, My Best Friend is actually the song you like more, but you didn't like it before. That might have been on a different album though. But uh, you seem like, why is it that some songs often take their time in your brain and they end up being a better song? Does that yeah, make sense? They're growers, they're growers not showers. <laughs> nice. Very good. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> it's funny because when I work, I, I've had the, the the privilege of working with some very high level people mm-hmm. and working in the arena of you know the NBA of pop music, as I would call it, mm-hmm. specifically Drake and Daft Punk. Right. And to see how they conceive music when they're making the music, when they're in the flow of it, they're just like any other musician. They're trying to get to a place, you know, with or without substances where they can just let go, stop judging themselves, be the subject mm-hmm. making music. But then very quickly, they sort of turn from being the subject, the subjective music maker, to listening to what they've done, whatever that demo form that they first capture that idea with. And that's the moment they start to think of, is this a song that people will have access to right away? Or is this a grower, not a shower? Mm-hmm. You know, is, these, is this a deep cut or is this the, the way into the album? And to see that on that level, they're very conscious of that at a fairly early stage was very interesting to me. I also am very fascinated by, you know, what happens to my brain or even physically how I go to another part of the room to listen to what I just performed in order to sort of think, well, how would this now, how would this function if it meets the world? Mm-hmm. And when you're doing it, of course, you're, you're hopefully not thinking of that because then you're not going to be letting go enough, you know? So I think some musicians are permanently stuck already thinking about the audience the minute they even sit down. That's not healthy. Mm-hmm. But some other musicians, and this might be worse, is where you permanently stay stuck in the subjective zone and you sort of tell yourself a story that, well, I'm not really trying to have an audience. If I have one, it's just a bonus. <laughs> it's like, yes. no. <laughs> That's not how it works. None of the great music was made that way. Mm-hmm. You need both. You need to be lost in your own music and to surprise yourself and to shock yourself and to disappoint yourself, all those different things you can do to yourself. But there is a moment where you have to say, okay, 
this now has to meet the world. What is this? How are people going to hear this? And and what should this be? Mm-hmm. And interesting to see someone like Drake or Daft Punk sort of immediately recognize what the potential. Is it a Bohemian Rhapsody or is it the other one you mentioned? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it is it a deep cut or is it uh, or is it my hit? Yeah, you uh, you actually won a Grammy, I think, for Daft Punk, right? Did you win That's a Grammy? Right. I did. Yeah. I had to bring that up because I knew you weren't going to bring it up. But you've worked with Drake, Daft Punk, Peaches, which is – there's a left field. Peaches, Jarvis well, Cocker. Well, Peaches, not only that. Peaches is like in Toronto, we came up together. Peaches is a singer, Leslie Feist, known as Feist yes. as well. That's like musical family. Then there are the other moments where I sort of get flown in. You know, the bat phone or the daft phone rings and you sort of end up uh, you know, going into the studio with some legends or whatever. But, uh, but yeah, Peaches, Jarvis Cocker and I made an album together and mm-hmm. he actually features on my forthcoming Christmas album as well, as does Leslie Feist. So I have to bring that these up. Are, these are, yeah, go ahead. No, but go, yo, but uh, um, yeah, you, the album you did with Jarvis Cocker was about being in a hotel, but you have a, a very chilly Christmas. You are putting out a Christmas album. It comes out in November. Uh, tell me about it. I haven't heard it. Well, I'm a secular Jew who decided to do a Christmas album uh, in, a lo- in a long line of other secular Jews who have done so, I imagine. No, I'm an entertainer. I am an audience-oriented musician. I'm interested in what brings people together. I'm interested in what, what happens in the collective musical unconscious when people hear Christmas songs. Mm-hmm. I, of course, I'm that guy who goes over to the piano. If there's a piano at someone's place, and I lead a sing-along, and it's wonderful. It's, it's called being useful, and I love it. Mm-hmm. And I've always had in mind, man, maybe it'd be worth to record these kind of little twists and turns that I've built into the arrangements when I play these Christmas songs. I got more serious about it last year uh, just because I don't know why, actually. It just sort of came into my mind. I think I was looking for music in Christmas of 2018 and couldn't really find much beyond, beyond some some nice boys choir music in a more serious moment and maybe some Stevie Wonder or some Nat King Cole when you want to be more loose. Mm-hmm. But Christmas is a time of year that is has mixed feelings for me. It was not a good space in general in my family. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people can probably relate to that statement. Yeah. And so it always feels like, where is the mixed feelings Christmas music? <laughs> and I'm that musician who understands that magic trick when, for example, you turn a song from major into minor, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's quite amazing when, when you take a just, a, you know, I'm just going to run over to my piano here. Okay. Hang on. So, you know, if I play the opening bars of Silent Night, for example, right? Yep. You hear that, right? Yep. Okay. So if I play it in a minor key, all I do is I sort of just, I just sort of move my finger infinitesimally either to the right or to the left, and you hear the shape of it. So you recognize that a silent night, and yet it's completely giving you a different emotional reaction. Mm-hmm. And this is really zoning in on what I find so fascinating about music is that it is science. It's frequencies. It's things that tickle your ear in a certain way that are pretty much undeniable. It's, it's, yet the result is pure emotion. So how can something so scientific produce such radical emotional reactions? And I think that's why music is that dominant art form in our lives. Mm-hmm. And the album has a lot of those twists and turns and sort of playful, sort of I dress up the songs in different clothes so we can finally hear them differently and they'll finally take you on an emotional journey that would be 
a bit more realistic and a bit more reflective of that strange alienation you can feel during Christmas time, whether you're a Jew or not, it's just this dominant force. It's this insane capitalistic, just <laughs> tsunami that happens every year with this pressure to be happy or a pressure to feel in family, a pressure to spend money, all these things. I don't hear Christmas music that speaks to that emotionally. It's not with lyrics that I talk about it, but it's with the music itself that I'm able to sort of take those Christmas songs. They already exist in everyone's mind. So they're ripe. They're ripe to be played with. They're ripe to be dressed up. They're ripe to be deconstructed or reconstructed. This sounds like my kind of Christmas album. Honestly, it does. Could you take, would you take a request for me? Sure. Can you play uh, the first song I ever heard by you or just part of it? You don't have to play the full song. Overnight, that was the first song I ever heard by you, even though you'd probably been involved in music that I, ha- I had listened to before. Here we go. Overnight. Sure. Just for you, Greg. That is that still gives me chills when I hear that. It's such a beautiful piece of music. That whole album is I have the I don't have the third one. I have the first two. I gotta get the third one. But that that first album, uh it was just it's solo piano one is what it's called. It's just uh it's a, just a beautiful, beautiful work. And I, I tell everybody to get it. I guess I should finish up because I've kept you. I want to ask you, how do you I don't want to end on a down note. So this will be the second to the last question. Uh, I have to ask you about Eddie Van Halen and your thoughts. He passed away yesterday. Uh, you and I, well, I'm, go ahead. Here, here we go. This is another example of a virtuosic musician who clearly was a, a slave to his craft and was someone who was very conscious of pleasing the gods of music. And yet, as we all know, mm-hmm. giant smile on his face. <laughs> and uh, and just bringing so much positivity along with the virtuosity. Clearly one of the least pretentious musicians. And, you know, a lot of the music he, he participated in, we can compare it a little bit to that Beastie Boys juvenile exuberance, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the same time, coupled with a real love for the craft. I mean, what's there to say? He's, he's a role model for us all. Yeah. It's, Rest in peace. It's so true because he was having fun. Like, and also Van Halen. The first, I mean, the first album to me was, I always tell the story, I stole silver dollars and half dollars from my dad's coin collection to buy that album. And I, so I always, I, I, I adore that album, although I have a sick sense of guilt whenever I, whenever I play it. It's like, I, I always think about that, which is, you know, but that's what a kid did. I was, what was I, 14, I think when that came. Is that the one with uh, happy trails on it at the end? Is, no, that's the second. Is that the second one? He okay. did Ice Cream Man. But, the first album but, had. But, but, okay, but you know when they did Happy Trails, that was oh, sort yes. of yes. That was sort of the tell. Yeah. That they're just they're just entertainers. I mean, David Lee Roth, of course, could yeah. easily be on the Borscht Belt, and you know, um, just just again an, another another wonderful entertainer. And uh, he beget. You know, 
He went to Vegas. I can imagine David Lee Roth doing an amazing secular Jewish Christmas album also. Yeah, he was uh, – he he went to – he, he kind of became – God, the just a gigolo uh, uh, part, you kind of like showed you what he – the side of him that as a heavy metal god uh, you didn't expect, you know. And so he is like he's, – he's a showman. He really is. I love. And he showed up in an episode of The Sopranos playing poker with uh, the mafia guys. <laughs> that was a that was a show that had great. Whoever was curating the music, which I think was David, was it the, the guy the behind a, who was actually the the writer. But they always had amazing music in that in that show. I don't know. I'm running out of stuff to ask you, even though I have like ten more pages of. So I'm just going to say, <laughs> what are you listening to? What do you like to listen to? Uh, I don't listen to that much music. I, I make music every day as right. much as possible, and I like to sort of keep with what I was playing. Of course, I hear music ambiently, and once in a while stuff comes on. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. The last thing I really loved probably in a deeper way was probably the the last Lana Del Rey album. Mm-hmm. I really loved that one, Norman Rockwell. Right. I really like uh, – I, really, I actually like that Kanye uh, Jesus is King album. I thought that was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, I like a lot of rap stuff, and um, – but mostly I'm just trying to essentially keep my ears uh, in, a, in a sort of state of um, cleanliness and, uh, and try not to hear too much so that when I'm making music, my ears are like really focused in and drilling down on what I'm doing. Yeah. I, I started listening to uh, – so the, the last – I've been buying a lot of albums, and I, but I, the last one I downloaded is – uh, King Buzzo from the Melvins and Trevor Dunn, who's from Mr. Bungle. So they put out an album called The Gift of Sacrifice. And it's not my kind of stuff, but I listen to it every single day. I don't know why. It's a, it's no drums, sta- uh, what do you call it, a stand-up uh, bass and uh, acoustic guitar. And it's like kind of like folky – folky dark doom metal i don't even know how to describe it but i find myself going back to it and i'm not sure why even them like there's strong melodies i guess but it's it's not something that i would normally listen to i find it, it well I, I, I suppose like just knowing those two musicians mm-hmm. knowing that they've sort of you know again coming full circle what we're talking about they've sort of taken away the usual trappings of how you hear their music mm-hmm. the melvins being like gigantic electric guitars and drums and mm-hmm. Mr. Bungle very dense and overarranged. Mm-hmm. So for them to sort of deprive themselves of that and still make music, I think puts them in kind of this, uh, this uncomfortable in a positive way, uh, uncomfortable situation. And then they have to sort of pass this test. Mm-hmm. Was the music only ever about those loud guitars or drums? Was the music only about the fact that there was, you know, people screaming and and crazy time (laughs) signature changes was that really all it was about well we're about to find out you know and they make this album Mm -hmm. where their musicality gets to survive in another form and gets to i guess not almost not just survive but evolve Mm -hmm. and i think that's what every musician should try to be doing it was great hearing your um jose feliciano interview (laughs) a a couple weeks back he said something i just maybe can finish on this Mm because he said he he didn't want the piano. He wanted the guitar because he could take it and you know serenade a girl. Right. And I would just push push back on that a little bit and say, when you're a pianist, you have a better excuse to get them to your place faster. <laughs> That's so true. Exactly. Uh, I have one last question: bathrobe. Why the bathrobe? You wear a bathrobe. 
when you play. I, I've been wearing bathrobes on stage, uh, gentlemen's bathrobes, yes. silk bathrobes, not like a terry cloth Weinstein deal, <laughs> but like, you know, a gentleman's bathrobe. Yes. I want to clarify that. But part of it is to, you know, I, I'm interested in a mix of respect and disrespect, especially the places I play. Uh, are concert halls. I play where the orchestras play. I play in Philharmonic halls around Europe and in Canada. Uh, I can't really get arrested in the States, so that hasn't really happened yet. <laughs> I did play once in the foyer of Lincoln Center, and I used to say the word foyer sort of under my breath. And say, <laughs> I played in the foyer of Lincoln Center. But anyway, um, <laughs> but I'm playing in these places where they expect a kind of um, reverential behavior. And I need to sort of jam that signal from the moment I walk on stage mm -hmm. and sort of claw myself back from that. So I've always chosen to walk on stage and make that one disrespectful sort of statement by wearing slippers and a bathrobe. Now, as the show goes on and as I turn that 2,000-seat orchestral concert hall into my own living room, suddenly the bathrobe changes for, for them and for me. And it becomes, wow, we're in my living room. I've let you in into an intimate space and we're close, which is the goal, of course, of a concert is to bring people close to you. So it starts out as, a, I would say, a slight disrespect. Mm -hmm. It has some humor to it as well. Um, but, you know, I'm wearing like nice dress pants and the, 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 the very, you know, it's very expensive stuff, Greg. I don't have to tell you. <laughs> it, it's not that I'm there in my pajamas and a terry cloth bathrobe. No. I'm a gentleman through it all. But there is that disrespect that is important to sort of jam the signal, get people feeling different in a concert hall. Otherwise, they're going to revert to the kind of socialized behavior that, they're, that, they're, that they've been doing whenever they walk into a place like that. So very often, strangely, people walk into a place like that and think they can't really like, let loose and have fun. My job over the course of these two hours is to get them that they feel like they're in that dirty club, even though they're in the, the, the Cologne Philharmonie or the, the Opéra de Paris or whatever. Um, and that's the bathrobe is my sort of first first line of of offense in order to sort of get them to think differently about what, what kind of concert is this going to be that's a great way of putting it i uh i could actually i, I want to elaborate on that but i i, I want to let you go and i got to get my makeup on i want to just find it's a dumb another dumb question everybody asks where can people a get the uh get the book which i assume all you have to do is google and you'll find it but and, the, and then the christmas album and where people can find more about you I'm sure you yeah, I would just say I would just say go to YouTube, watch some master classes. That's a great way in because I talk about songs you already know. Mm -hmm. You hear me play. Otherwise, the solo piano trilogy is sort of like I said, that's the atomic level of my music making. But I have I have albums on there with uh, with Boys Noise, who's a great German producer, electronic albums. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've made some sort of anthems, piano electronic anthems that ended up as the uh, the French World Cups the French World Cup team's theme when they win and moments like that where I, you know, sort of can transcend that world of just being uh, a solo pianist and sort of end up in a Where's Waldo moment where my music ends up in a sort of unlikely spot, let's say. So, you know, start with the solo piano album trilogy and, uh, and some YouTube masterclasses. It's probably the best. It's Chili Gonzalez with an S, not a Z. Chili, a pleasure. Thank you for giving me all this time. I, I really appreciate it. And, oh, it's uh, really my pleasure. Th thanks for thanks for giving me uh, giving me the chance to talk to you. You got it. I hope to talk to you again soon when you're in the states.
Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.